this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in today. We are back in Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1 here in just a moment. We are continuing our new series that we began a couple of weeks ago, and this is now the third part of that series. It's called Self-Worship. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, the second half of Romans chapter 1, as Paul begins to show how all people who have ever lived are indicted before God. And this is a discussion that will continue into chapters 3 and 4 and is just replete with so many teaching points. And so we're going to begin this morning in Romans chapter 1. I'd ask if you turn to Romans chapter 1 with me and begin reading in verse 18. I think it's so important, as I've said, and you are probably tired of hearing me say it over and over again, I think it's so important that we look at the Word of God for ourselves and consider the text for ourselves, see it with our own eyes, and process it as we're going through it and discussing it this this morning. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes and His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and all they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, not a flattering picture that Paul is painting here of these folks, to put it Mildly, So why does he begin with such a scathing remarks? I think to our modern, sensitive, politically correct American ears, it, it would seem scathing. But um, this is the truth, nevertheless, uh, that Paul is inspired to write here. And he is speaking of folks 
who have, as he says, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And specifically, even though he doesn't use this word atheism, that's what he's talking about. Because he says even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge God as God, uh, nor honor him or give him give him thanks. And so they, as he argues here, know, or as he proves here, he doesn't need to argue, he's, he's speaking the truth. He, he says these folks understand in their heart of hearts that there is a God, and yet they continue to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Even though it's evident within them, it's evident in creation. And so he is speaking of, uh, of atheism here, folks that, as the Bible says, are, are fools. And in Psalm 14, in verse 1, if memory serves, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul is explaining why that's the case, because what can be known about God is clearly seen in creation, not to the fullest extent as what we see in, written in the Word, but nevertheless, what we need to know and to get us started. And, and at the very least, we can see that what is behind all of creation in the universe is an all-powerful, all-loving, eternal God, person, uh, who is beyond anything that we can really get our heads around. But nevertheless, he has revealed himself in creation and in his holy Bible. And Paul says, this is the God, the only God, whom these folks have rejected. And thus, as a result of this exchanging of this fundamental truth, the most fundamental truth of all truth, that there is a God, and abandoning that, they have given themselves over to lawlessness and all kinds of reprehensible behavior and conduct, as, as he names here. And so this really, this section of Scripture, among others, just blows up any philosophy or any notion that Human decency is not derived from religion. Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist writer, was a prolific writer, uh, you know, um, avowed atheist and, and very well well known. He's passed away, and he has in the last couple of years now, I think, from cancer. But uh, did a lot of speaking, did a lot of debating, and he once said that human decency is not derived from religion. He says it precedes it, and so ultimately he's he's making the humanistic argument, the humanistic doctrine. Uh, there is that all good moral morality, decency, is not extrinsic. In other words, there's no lawgiver. You know, the good morality, uh, what what we would call good or moral, that's that comes from within. It's not derived from anywhere else, but it's derived from within people, and that's a very confident assertion to make that laws, moral laws, all laws cannot be traced to a supernatural source, but it certainly, it flies in the face of all of scripture. Uh, and one cannot easily and certainly not honestly dismiss the powerful rebuttal that we just read from Romans chapter one, verses 18 and following. And, and other scriptures as well that teach us that people Humans are not the source, are not the source of good. doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing good moral things and, and living good moral lives. Uh, that's not the same thing. But we are not ultimately the source of moral laws. We certainly can't be um, 
we're not competent to judge what a moral law is. We have to rest solely in what has been revealed by the ultimate lawgiver who is who is God. Proverbs 14:12 tells us that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is death. Its end is death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And that all that saying is we can't be left to ourselves, right? If we if we're left to ourselves to make judgments about morality and goodness, we can't even get and you know, and truth. We can't even get gender right. We can't even get it right when the truth is staring us right in the face. This is a boy. This is a girl. This is a man. This is a woman, etc. We can't even get that right. We confuse that deliberately, even. So any philosophy which states, as the one that we just read. From Christopher Hitchens, there's a ton of other people who would say the same thing, that human decency, human goodness, and human morality is not derived from a supernatural source. That's, that's just totally bogus. The Bible is just going to utterly dismantle all of that foolish talk. Those philosophies are doctrines of, of demons. That's what the enemy wants us to believe so that we can wind up in the same confused, gullible, reprobate state as these folks that we read about here at the end of of Romans chapter 1. And we each and every person present company included my, myself included can you know has the capacity to arrive at this point that Paul these these behaviors I should say uh, can be reduced to engaging in these behaviors that Paul is talking about living the kind of the kind of life that Paul is describing here that's reprehensible to God at the end of Romans chapter 1. And all of that begins, all of that he's saying in, in this discourse, he's saying all of that behavior begins with the refusal to acknowledge and worship God. That's his diagnosis. That the cause for all evil, corruption, social decay, you know, behind which all of this is sin, it's a spiritual problem. It's, it's our refusal, behind it all is our refusal to acknowledge and worship God, who is the creator of all things, and the source of every good and perfect gift, as James says in James 1.17. That's it. There's more to say, but the big takeaway from that text, here's Paul in his beginning to prove that all men are guilty of sin. The big takeaway is that people, people are guilty. You and I are to blame for everything wrong in the world, not God. All the political ills, all the moral and social ills and corruption we see all around us in the news daily on a daily basis and what we experience personally in our in our lives as we live you know and go about our jobs and whatever school from day to day all that all that sickness and sin and corruption can be traced to prideful humans pursuing perverted desires again simply because we just won't humble ourselves before almighty god and submit to his authority and laws. And there's other lessons we can take from this text as, as well. Paul says in verse 18, beginning that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is, is real. He is not vindictive. He's not vengeful. But he does ultimately deliver retribution against sin, sinners, those who refuse, as we see in the text here, to surrender to him. 
acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done for us and humble ourselves before him. If we can't do that, if we can't manage to do that, uh, then we're going to be on the receiving end of, of God's wrath. And Paul will, of course, go into detail. You know, all of the New Testament goes into more detail about how it is we humble ourselves before him. Right, the the whole theme of this series is chains from chains of slavery to chains of righteousness. How can we be righteous or justified before God? And it's only through Jesus Christ and His sacrificial blood and His and His resurrection, and having Him as our advocate before the Father. But dialing back in on the point that we're making is that the wrath of God is is real, and we need to be saved from it. God is not going to withhold His wrath from unrighteousness as it's being revealed here in his holy word. And as we see throughout history, tons of historical examples as, as well. You know, take as a big, for instance, Genesis 19, the outcry of Sodom's wickedness became so great that the Lord destroyed it alongside of Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. So not just those two major cities, but the surrounding region and the cities there in Genesis 19. That's what he reveals to Abraham, that the, that the outcry of Sodom's wickedness has become so great, I've come down to see whether or not uh, it is this exceedingly great. And that's my paraphrase. And that's speaking in anthropomorphic terms or in, in terms that people can understand. It's not that God didn't know what was going on, all right? He's, he, he knows all things, but that was to communicate to us that he is involved and he does care. He, doesn't, he didn't just wind the world up and just let us go uh, and do whatever we want. No, he's, he's still concerned and cares about what happens in his world and he's going to hold all people accountable and so when abraham gets up in that context on the next day and the the text says that he he looked down uh at, at in the into the valley he's he's up on a you know a higher plane and he's looking down to the valley where these cities were it says behold the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace in genesis 19:28 like the smoke of a furnace, so just like billowing smoke. I mean, just epic destruction, right? And th and that's a picture. That's that's just a snapshot of God's wrath. And who wants to be on the receiving end of that, right? The, who wants to be on the receiving end of the fire and the brimstone that will consume all the adversaries of God? That's spoken of. You know, we see a glimpse of it in Genesis 19, all those years ago. And that's going to pale in comparison to the final condemnation, which Revelation 21.8 calls the second death, which is reserved for the ungodly who never repent. And truly it will be more bearable, Jesus says, truly it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who have rejected the gospel of Christ in Matthew 10.15. So the wrath of God is real. He does punish evil. And we can't allow ourselves to be deceived that just because we don't see immediate retribution for all the things going wrong in the world that it eventually won't come. Peter urges us to remember in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is not slow. He's not slow as some men count slowness, but he is patient, wanting all men to come to repentance. And so a day of reckoning is coming, but the only reason Peter says it's being delayed is because God works in his own time and he wants all people to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all people to ultimately submit to him, come to repentance, and find and discover the reason that they were created to begin with and find the joy and the peace and the comfort that is 
that, that he is, that he offers through his son and, and the life that, that he offers. Because every man is going to be accountable. Every man is without excuse. That's the next point. You know, the Bible's teachings regarding the wrath of God and hell and the final judgment, that's never been popular. In Acts 24, 25, we can see an example of Paul speaking to a man who I think uh, his name was Felix, or perhaps it was Festus, I, I don't recall. But as he is speaking of these very things, it says that he became afraid and he dismissed Paul for the time being until a more convenient time. And ultimately, he wasn't that man wasn't interested in hearing what Paul had to say, but he was hoping that he'd get some money from Paul somehow. Uh, so he didn't have genuine motives to begin with. But ultimately, when Paul was going through this teaching, the, these sobering truths about the wrath of God and who God is and judgment to come, it was scary to this individual. But that just just because it's unpleasant and just because it's scary and just because we don't want to hear it doesn't make it any less true. You know, I think some people have difficulty. I have difficulty squaring with those doctrines. And, you know, without reinfor- without going to the Word of God, without going to the Bible and seeing them there with our own eyes and, and reinforcing those things, we're going we're gonna to doubt the biblical veracity of those teachings because uh, so much of what we hear from the world is just the opposite, right? What, how how most of the religious world paints God and what people, I think, want to believe who maybe don't even have any religious affiliation but are still would still believe in God, would say that he's tolerant and loving and patient, which is true, and he's all of those things. But they have so conceived of those of his patience and tolerance and, and love so as to mean that he will never judge anyone or never punish anyone. And, and thus we get the argument that a loving God would never send decent moral people to hell. Well, we need to be careful that we're not imposing human finite standards of judgment onto an infinitely wise and infinitely good and infinitely loving creator. But we have to trust what he has we have to trust what he has revealed in his holy word. And if he says and if he says there is no one righteous, not even one, that means exactly that. That means that there's not a single accountable intrinsically righteous person and when he says that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, and as a result of that, people, all people are without excuse before him, Romans 1.20, that means exactly what it says. It means that you and I and everybody else are guilty of sin without excuse, and we all need to be forgiven. And if I refuse the only avenue of receiving God's forgiveness, that is Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. If I refuse that only avenue that is offered to me and to all people to be reconciled to God and to be forgiven of my sins, then the only alternative for me is certain spiritual eternal death. And I have no excuse, nor does anybody else. And to refuse, to refuse is to be arrogant and prideful and to remain blind and foolish and under wrath. That's the point that Paul makes really in, in, 
throughout the 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 meat of this text is that atheism, this refusal to acknowledge God, this refusal to honor God and give Him thanks, is born from arrogance and foolishness. Because as He's already laid down the premise that all people are without excuse because of the sufficient evidence of God's existence and power, all of it's clearly seen. A refusal to acknowledge Him betrays that one is arrogant. It betrays that one has an arrogant, idolatrous heart. Verse 19, they knew God, but they refused to honor him. They refused to give thanks, and so they became futile in their speculations. Right? If you're, if you're going to deny the very truth that's in front of you, you've got to, you've got to speculate. You've got to, you've got to weave some sort of story. And when, when people refuse to honor and glorify and thank God and choose rather to speculate and, and invent, invent all these elaborate uh, mythologies to try and explain the world, or in, and I include evolution in that, and I think evolution is a mythology from the mind of man, from his imagination, that people have spun up to try and explain life and man's purpose, that's choosing the path of a fool. Humility, gratitude, in recognition of one's total dependence on God are vital to gaining more knowledge about God and having a reasonable moral view of life in general. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise instruction. So the people under consideration in Romans chapter 1 are so far from humbling themselves and owning up to their own foolishness and owning up to their own sin and their own unworthiness and owning up to the, the clear evidence that points to an all-powerful, all-loving creator, that they are just mired in their own deception. And so they profess that these fictions, these self-made fictions that they have come up with of um, evolution and, you know, I think of Greek mythology and pagan mythologies and things like this, which some people still believe in, you know, astrology. I mean, we still have horoscopes and newspapers for crying out loud. They profess all that fiction to be wisdom. That that's real knowledge, that Darwin's uh, origin of species, that's real wisdom and knowledge. And so, in their pride, they justify themselves and they close themselves off to the knowledge of God declaring that there is no God greater than oneself. And so, as Paul says, they bow low to one another and they submit to their most perverted desires, right? Because if there's no God higher than self, then what reason would you have to refuse base desires like men having sex with other men or women having sex with other women? Their inclination to worship has been wholly perverted and informed and executed according to their fleshly appetites. That's the picture that Paul is painting here. That's, that's idolatry. Humanism, humanism is idolatry. And the Bible says, Jeremiah says, that I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, and that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23 We all desperately need the wisdom of God. But he's not going to force anyone to obey him. He never has. He's not going to force anyone to submit to him. That's not what a God of love does. But when men exchange the undeniable objective truth of God for a lie, 
God will allow them to pursue a self-destructive course at their own expense. God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4, but at no point in history has God ever forced anyone into obeying him. God will allow corrupt passions to consume the people who want to be fueled by them and let them engage in things grotesque and unnatural like sodomy and lesbianism and go from bad to worse because that's the only course that's left when someone abandons the author of all things good and right. So deep can one's hatred of God run that he can become an inventor of evil, as Paul says, and so blatantly irreverent that he will stay the course despite knowing the penalty. That's how Paul ends that section. Did you catch it in verse twenty-one, verse 29? That these folks, um, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed, uh, knowing that, uh, verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So they continue to stay the course despite knowing that this is wrong. That there is ultimately a penalty, some of which I'm receiving in my own body, as Paul mentions earlier in the context of uh, homosexuality, receiving in their own persons the penalty of their error. You know, there were diseases, STDs then, just as, as there are now. And certainly that uh, is part of the penalty, I'm, I'm convinced, and other side effects that are too grotesque to mention on this program. But ultimately, the penalty that will be paid is spiritual in nature, and that's spiritual death, eternal death. Because of our refusal, refusal to, to submit and worship the one true God and, and live our lives on His terms as he has created us. So who will you worship? That's the question. Paul is saying that ultimately human humanism and, and philosophies like it, he doesn't name that, that term specifically, but uh, atheism, humanism, philosophy, you know, worldly philosophies amount to self-worship. Right? There is no higher God than people or one's will or one's personal truth or whatever the case may be, how somebody... However, someone may word it, but ultimately what you submit yourself to is what you worship. And Paul is saying here by implication, don't, don't allow yourself to be, to be your own God. Submit to God, acknowledge God, honor him as God, give thanks, pursue him and look into his word and find what his revealed will is for all people. As he says in Romans 6 and verse 16, that don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey. And whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So it's one or the other. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. Paul says we're, we are all, each and every one of us, we're either a slave to sin or we are a slave to obedience and surrender to God and thus righteous. And sadly, many have chosen and will continue to choose to worship at the altar of self, which Isaiah says is feasting on spiritual ashes, wasting away, 
while the bread of heaven is offered to them. I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want anyone else to make that mistake. Because we all have the capacity to do so. Hebrews 3.12 As the writer there is speaking to Christians, he says, Brethren, be careful that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in any one of you which falls away from the living God. So I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody else this morning. James says in James chapter 4 and verse 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I believe that. I believe that. And I hope that you will continue to study these things and look into God's Word to discover Him, look to His creation and and strive to be honest with yourself as I strive to be honest with myself about His expectations and who He is, what He has called me to be, and how I can be pleasing to Him. Would you not obey his gospel today? I'd love to visit with you some more about that if you desire. You can contact me through leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org. You can submit a question there. Find more contact information. You can give us a call, leave a message. So I invite you to do that if that's your desire. At any rate, I hope you continue to pray about these things and study them for yourself. And I look forward to studying with you again from God's Holy Word next week. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.